Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. I began the last show talking about the brutal temperatures around the world, and since then the record high temperatures have only got worse. It seems very likely that the past two weeks were globally the hottest on record. Estimates of temperatures running back into prehistoric times suggest we may be in the world's warmest period for 125,000 years, or thereabouts. As I'm talking to you now, the temperature outside my window here in New York, temperature's getting up to about 85 degrees Fahrenheit, that's about 29 degrees Celsius, and it is pretty steamy and humid out there. I can tell you, not very nice getting outside right now, but in New York, we're getting off relatively lightly. In Phoenix, Arizona, it looks like they're going to have temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit for the entire month of July. Just breathtaking, really, when you think about those temperatures that they're getting. Now, obviously, this has huge relevance to the world of energy. Energy clearly has a big impact on those temperatures because burning fossil fuels is one of the key human activities that releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But those temperatures and climate change more broadly also have huge effects on the energy business. And that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today. To do that, I'm delighted to be joined again by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, doing well, Ed. Looking forward to this conversation. Are you also sweltering in these New York temperatures right now? Oh, my goodness. Well, so I was in New York, then I was in D.C., and then I was in Texas. And I think the peak temperature in all those places, Texas took the cake. And uh, 115 is what my car has told me it has been um, at different times, uh, which is hot. DC actually got really pleasant after a rainstorm. It cooled down. It was like this lovely little break in the heat, but really feeling it in all three places. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a pleasure to welcome back Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy, how are you? I'm good. Nice to see you and Melissa and uh, cool here on the seashore in Connecticut. Oh, much nicer. The only place to be, the only sensible response to conditions like these, definitely. But thank you both very much for joining me on the Energy Gang today. So, as I say, we're going to be talking today about extreme heat and extreme climate conditions in general and energy. There's quite a few ways we could approach this topic. I wanted to try and divide it up a little bit, if we can, into thinking about sort of the demand side first and then the supply side later and start off by thinking about the impact that extreme heat has on demand for energy. The most obvious impact, of course, is in soaring demand for power for cooling, especially for air conditioning. If you look at the numbers, power demand has been absolutely shattering records in Texas, in Phoenix, other parts of the US, and in other countries around the world. In India, for instance, power demand has been hitting new record highs because of the extreme heat they've been suffering there. And also, of course, just because it's a growing economy and power demand is on a rising trend. But even within that trend, it's hitting extreme highs just in the past few weeks. So, Amy, maybe start with you on this one. When you think about the impact of extreme heat on energy demand and what it means for the strain on the electricity grid in particular, how do you think about this? Well, I mean, we know from last September in California, typically average electricity demand in California is somewhere between 30 and 35 gigawatts. Um, And with the surge in electricity use, it hit a peak on September 6th last year of 52 gigawatts. So that is a giant 
increase just from the air conditioning load alone. And the three and a half gigawatts of battery storage helped last year. This year, they've got even more. It's 5.6 gigawatts. But this is hard for utilities and uh, system operators to manage. And, you know, I think over time, like in California, people are raising their hands and saying, well, geez, you're talking about adding EVs, which will mean a 10% increase to peak load by 2035 and a 20% increase for base load demand. How is California going to manage this? But the flip side, which people talk about less, because if you are in the energy business, you just want to, you know, you have a pitch deck with this upwardly rising line for electricity demand and air conditioning and all these things. But actually, climate change is a mixed bag because all these heat waves and droughts and high temperatures and flooding and disasters actually lowers GDP overall. And we see that, you know, concrete example, the World Bank numbers are now out for the economic losses experienced by Pakistan last year with the floods. They saw a loss of GDP of above 2% just in the first year post the floods. And we know from hurricanes like Rita and Katrina, that the losses, you know, you get a little bit of a boost from reconstruction activity, but that the overall trajectory for GDP for places that are hit with these disasters can be long lasting. And sort of the last sort of meta analysis, you know, in, in the academic world, that's when you let the computer pick out all the different studies and then you analyze their commonalities. In 2014, which was before we even got to the increase in climate events that we're having now, it was found that natural disasters can lower 7% GDP for a long-lasting period of time for those countries that are most vulnerable. So double-edged sword, uh, if you're an energy producer, it seems like maybe a heat wave is a good thing in the sense that more business, more business. But Overall, climate change is a Debbie Downer when it comes to overall economic growth and prosperity. And then I think Melissa is the health and climate change expert here. Um, and so, Melissa, I'm sure you have other insights as to how that affects you know, economic activity in general. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I mean, if we take all the different impacts of the changing climate, you know, what's already baked in because we've already put emissions into the atmosphere, and then we zoom in on extreme heat events. So not average rises over the course of a year or years, but these extreme spikes that really put a lot of stress on our bodies. From a health perspective, when you're exposed to extreme heat, you have increased risk of heat stress but also kidney failure and strokes. And the longer the heat waves are, the more these things are exacerbated. And we just see that in the health data. And in particular, if you're a young child, so especially under a year old, or if you're over 65, you are more at risk from the impacts from heat. And I'll say just from a numbers perspective, if you look at like heat-related deaths, so mortality for people who are over 65, and you look at a couple multi-year periods, because you don't want to zoom in on one year, there could be some you know bumps in the data where you had less or more extreme events in one year, but you look at you know 2000 to 2004 versus 2017 to 2021, we saw a 68% increase in heat-related deaths for people over 65. And in general, a lot of the folks over 65 you know, aren't working in these sectors we think of as being exposed to extreme heat in their day-to-day -day working activities like agriculture and service sector, but these numbers are just really stark. But in terms of what you were talking about with GDP impacts, I zoom in on the impact of these really extreme heat events on labor productivity and just these higher temperatures and the numbers you're talking about in Arizona. I mean, these are, these are big deals. And if you work outside, 
it's a problem. So overall, in the Lancet countdown, we counted up the number of hours of lost labor productivity we had around the world, which of course links to GDP and economic growth. But overall, we saw that heat exposure led to a loss of 470 billion, with a B, potential labor hours in 2021 alone, conservative number. And this is a 37% increase from the 90s. While a lot of that loss was in low human development index countries who have a higher proportion of their population working in agriculture, we also saw that in the United States, we lost about 2.5 billion labor hours in 2021. And some of this was agriculture. A lot of it was construction and the service industry, where in those jobs, you have to be outside more. You aren't walking around with a personal bubble with an air conditioner. And when you're talking about a month of 110 plus, I mean, working outside in that, that just wreaks havoc on your body and your productivity. Yeah, that is absolutely amazing. Those are really striking numbers. And I think it's really important then when you think about the impacts of climate change, we often have this discussion in terms of what are the economic impacts going to be in the future and what are things going to look like 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 80 years from now. But actually, we are seeing these impacts hitting already right here and now today as we speak, aren't we? I mean, this is something I know that there is a lot of controversy about in terms of what they call attribution science and how you link specific weather patterns to what's happening in the climate on the way that the climate is changing. But it does seem pretty clear, doesn't it, Melissa, that this extreme heat we're seeing at the moment is very likely to be related to the fact that the world is on a generally warming trend, right? Yeah, it seems really clear in the data. I'll snag the the phrase that came out of the World Weather Attribution Scientists, the group they put together, they have their whole report online and they go to the methodologies that they use, which is in the peer-reviewed literature. But they were quoted in the New York Times and I think the phrase was, it is virtually impossible that these levels of extreme heat would have happened without climate change, without the things we've done to our climate. And this in the energy space brings us back to a discussion where, you know, we've touched on this in different ways in a lot of our conversations, the three of us, but we're mitigating we're trying to bend the curve and bring emissions down, but we also are having to adapt because, Ed, to exactly what you said, these things are already happening. Like These data are clear. It's not 80 years from now. We're already experiencing the health impacts of climate change, and so how do we adapt in that situation? And that has big energy demand implications, potentially. Absolutely. And that's, I think, a really important point I wanted to raise with both of you, which is Well, there's something I saw recently, which I just wanted to get your thoughts on, which I thought was kind of interesting and made a good point, but also kind of missed the point, which was the argument to say, yes, the climate may be changing. Yes, we're experiencing these terrible extremes of heat right now, but this is something that we can adapt to. This is something that we can live with. And we, in particular, meaning Americans, um, we're used to very wide extremes of temperature. We do have this wonderful thing called air conditioning and other forms of cooling that make it possible to live without air conditioning, right? No one would live in Phoenix anyway, ever, would they? These are cities and ways of life that have been made possible really entirely by air conditioning. And so as the climate changes, we're just going to have to adapt. We're going to be able to adapt. And just as air conditioning has made it possible for us to cope with temperatures that 100 years ago, no one would have been prepared to put up with, or only a handful of people would have been prepared to put up with, higher temperatures in the future are something that we're going to be able to manage in a range of different ways because of technological progress. And I mean, to an extent, there is something in that, I think. I mean, it's absolutely true that, as you say, Melissa, we are going to adapt 
And there is a lot that technology can do to make our lives easier, to make it possible to live through conditions we couldn't have otherwise lived through. But I also wonder if that's slightly missing the point and that there are some risks that we can't adapt to. I don't know. Amy, what do you think? Well, you know, I think first step, first step, the person who wrote that commentary is living in a very privileged position where they have access to air conditioning and they can afford it. Even in a wealthy country like the United States, one in five Americans today are having difficulty paying their electricity bill. The number of shutoffs is on the rise. You've got different state legislatures that are looking at, during COVID, we forbid uh, utilities from turning off people's electricity for non-bill payment. But you know, when it becomes a matter of life and death, like in the heat wave in Phoenix and places like that, you know, are we going to let merchant plants just turn people off? Are we going to let state utilities just turn people off? And the consequence of that, are they going to die? You know, there's a big controversy in the environmental justice community within the United States about whether you can ask people to go to a public library or some other stadium or whatever to participate in a cooling center or whether you have to provide them some service in their homes, especially for older Americans who don't like to travel or don't have access to the means to travel. But then if you start going down to the global south and to the Middle East and places like that, the statement that somehow we have the technology to provide cooling to people ignores the fact that 900 million people in the world do not have access to electricity services at all. Yeah, Amy, when you look at the numbers and the number of disconnections that are occurring as people can't pay their electricity bills, and then you expand that to all energy, even just in the United States, like that number one in five, it goes to one in three when you look at energy more broadly in security in the US. And when you consider the number of people who are not even turning on their air conditioners when it's 90 plus degrees inside their homes, because they know they can't afford the bill. And then if their utilities get cut off and then they have to leave their homes, I mean, this is a massive stressful problem. And there's a flip side of that also not heating their homes to a healthy temperature. The number is at least one in three, and it's probably creeping up to within spitting distance of half. And that's already today in the US, an extremely wealthy country. Um, one thing I'll say to your question, Ed, is um, what's that phrase? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like we want to invest in curing this. In, uh, I love the phrase, when you're in a hole and you need to get out, don't dig deeper. Like stopping digging is step one. So it's like we need to stop digging the hole deeper so that we have less of a hole to dig ourselves out of. We're already in a hole though, so we are going to have to adapt and we're already trying to adapt. And some of us have more capacity to adapt in the United States and globally, to Amy's point. Um, but yes, we will have to mitigate and adapt. Any of the studies that I look at, any of the numbers we look at, even if you ignore just some practical social aspects of all this, just the cost, we want to mitigate as we adapt. But we want to mitigate as quickly as possible so that we have to adapt less because adapting is extremely expensive, also incredibly detrimental for health. And I'm talking about physical health, but also mental health. Um, when you think about whole populations having to move. To your point then about when you're in a hole, stop digging. Unfortunately, the hole that we're in right now kind of forces us to dig, doesn't it? I mean, as we've been hearing, because of people wanting to run their air conditioning, needing to run their air conditioning, that increasing power demand, absolutely amazing numbers from India, right? I mean, as you say, if you think about the global south, in general, people don't have air conditioning. If you compare the United States, I think it's something like 90% of households have air conditioning in the US. In India, it's only 5%. And 
as usage of air conditioning has been growing in India, as people have got richer and their lifestyles have been, been improving very reasonably, they want to get towards uh, US levels of air conditioning. That means they use more power. That's one of the things that's been driving up power, just as I was saying, in the last few weeks. Look at China, and this is something we'll probably get into in a moment because China's problems with hydropower have been part of this. But one of the crucial things that's been happening in China is, again, it's been very, very hot. More people want to have air conditioning, run their air conditioning. China's coal-fired power burn in June of this year was up 14% from what it was in June of 2022. This is something where the kind of the short-term fixes, the immediate responses to the problem seem to only make the long-term problem worse. So listen, I got heckled when I said this last summer at a large gathering of electric utilities from the Midwest. But, you know, Bloomberg New Energy Finance says that sort of energy efficient automation solutions are a $5 trillion or to $6 trillion opportunity in the electricity space, in the clean tech space. And, you know, last year, California, and this year too, you know, is texting people to tell them how to adjust their thermostat. But, you know, we've discussed, I mean, eventually, hopefully, we get to a point where a lot of that can be automated and thereby be done in a way that doesn't require people to have to turn off their air conditioning because they can't afford it. And indeed, you know, as we've discussed on the show, California is sort of first in the nation in trying to have electricity rates tied to your net income and not just to the forces that have driven the wholesale market uh, traditionally, which is that corporations get discounts because of their higher use. And Ed, on your point, I mean, to be Absolutely clear. When we talk about energy transition pathways, legitimate ones that are practically achievable, they all include making sure that around the world we have access to affordable, reliable, and clean energy. And this is in line with sustainable development goals. And within that, I would just add the nuance of this isn't an access discussion. That's like baby step one, you know, in the process. That's great. We're not talking about a solar panel and a battery. You can charge your phone, you know, run a fan. We're talking about access to the amount of energy that is needed for full development in places that haven't done that. And so, yes, the hole continues to get a bit deeper as we build the ladder or whatever the right analogy is to get us out of the hole. Um, but within that, we are still in that whole process thinking about how we change that rate of the hole getting deeper, if that is a clear way of saying it, or at least how I think through it. So we're getting everyone to have access. I'm already regretting this whole analogy. I'm like, no. Yeah, but no, sorry, sorry. Go walk me through that. What are you saying here? The point is within all these processes and all these different things we're putting in place is like, how do we make sure that as we go to net zero, that we're protecting health? So we are not in any way demonizing using more electricity for air conditioning, especially in countries that don't have access to that right now, but also communities here in the United States that don't have access to that right now to keep people safe in their homes for a variety of reasons. But stepping beyond it, I still go back to thinking about people who do jobs that require them to be outside and how do we provide situations in which that is not something that will result in extreme detriments to health. And so there is adaptation in the near term as we attempt to mitigate so that we don't have to adapt as much as time goes on. But there's already adaptation needed now. I mean, go back to your temperatures in Arizona. Go back to the 115, my car was telling me it was, um, here in Texas yesterday. We already are adapting. And specifically to what Amy said earlier, 
when it comes to there's India, you flagged it, Ed. I also work with so many colleagues who are across the continent of Africa and thinking about the level of access to energy at a fundamental level, but also access to the energy that's needed for development and the gaps there. And how do you develop resources to make sure that everyone in those countries has what they need? But I, I think when we talk about Africa, I think we need to really level set our knowledge because hydro is actually the leading source of electricity for Africa. The reason we're having blackouts recently in South Africa is because of the poor maintenance of their coal plants. So, you know, there, there's this general belief, especially if you're, you know, talking to people from Texas that somehow, you know, moving away from coal or natural gas is going to cause this horrible crisis. Uh, and there's just everybody in the world has to do like they do. But the truth is 80 to 90 percent of electricity generated for some of the biggest African countries. So Congo, Ethiopia, which has a population of 205 million people, Malawi, Mozambique, Namibia, Zambia, all comes from hydro. And that, you know, that's raised other questions, which is with these high heat, rising temperatures and drought, can those countries who are planning to expand hydro and hydro being a big part of what we call the African power pools, that's when you do cross-border trade to help the balance of uh, electricity across multiple countries. How much is climate change going to affect hydro and what else do these countries need to be doing? Some of the work I've done with the team at Fletcher School's Climate Policy Lab, you know, shows that increasingly countries like Ethiopia and other countries in sub-Saharan Africa need to gear up to have more solar and wind and so forth in their systems because they can't 100% rely on hydro and they have to have a more complex mix of electricity resources across different kinds of use. And indeed, one big trend in Africa today is something that is called captive power. And that's when you have a manufacturing venture that puts in its own solar just for itself off grid to make sure that it's not affected by an unreliable grid. And that's now 10% of electricity in Africa is comes from captive power. And Ed, I really want to push hard on this point Amy's making because it's not just in Africa. I also just got out of a series of meetings at the United Nation with my Latin American colleagues. And when you look at countries that are depending on very high levels of hydro, for either high levels in terms of overall electricity production or key essential services backup for different things, whatever it is when they're dependent on hydro, this opens up the question of how this changing climate is changing resource availability, which is not by zero. And we're seeing this tension arrive in the West, in the US, and around the world as we see hydro resources being impacted by droughts and extreme heat. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great segue onto the other half of this conversation, if you like, which is this broader question of how does climate change and extreme temperatures in particular, how do they affect energy production and what we're able to do in terms of meeting that huge and growing demand for energy? You mentioned hydro. That does seem to be one very, very direct one that is very weather and climate dependent. Very interesting. There's a good piece actually on this in the Wall Street Journal recently, where they were just saying, look across the United States, look at the strain that's been on the power grid, look how strong demand has been. Actually, things have been better than they could have been. We haven't suffered widespread blackouts across large parts of the states. There have been some problems in some places, but not really huge issues with blackouts. And there's been a variety of different reasons why that is. One of the key things in California has been that actually hydro generation is relatively strong because it happened to be 
a wet winter, there was rainfall, there was snow, reservoirs are relatively well stocked. And so hydro generation in California has been able to play quite a key role in keeping the lights on. Contrast that then with what's been happening in China, in Sichuan, where there have been very widespread large-scale blackouts because of their hydropower being very low, because rainfall's been very poor. And clearly, this is something which is happening as a result of climate change. Again, hard to pinpoint specific instances, but just as a general trend, as the climate changes, patterns of precipitation around the world will change and you'll get heavier rain in some parts of the world, less rain in other parts, and perhaps you'll get wetter years and dry years or whatever it might be. But definitely there will be changes and that is going to create big issues for hydropower. And hydropower, which I guess we've been used to thinking of it perhaps as a fairly reliable source and something that you say, well, it's great, we've got hydropower, we can use that to back up variable renewables like wind and solar. It's not really totally reliable and you can't always use it in that role. Is that fair? I think I would say it is as follows, Ed. And then Amy, I'm sure you have numbers about a bunch of this stuff, and I'd love if we could go through a few of them. But within this, we need to plan for what things are going to look like for the next 50 years, not the last 50 years. That's what I say. And when it comes to hydro, natural gas, coal, you know, solar, wind, the transmission lines, the whole system, there are vulnerabilities with extreme weather events and changing trends across all of them whether it's a cooling pond, a hydro reservoir, a field of solar panels, et cetera. So understanding that and internalizing it in our planning processes so we make sure that energy is there and it's reliable and affordable and secure and all of that, it's just really important. As you say, Ed, it can still rain the same amount in a region. The question is, does that water end up in a reservoir? Does it end up in a cooling pond? Does it end up where we used to get it in the past? And if that storm has moved 10 miles to the west or east, the answer might be not as much. So we need to just take account for this. And this isn't meant to be like the sky is falling type of a comment. This is really practical. And we have models that allow us to do this, that allow us to actually say with different probabilities what we expect to see in the future and measure that out in a really granular way. So we can look at where we have risks that then we can mitigate before they become real problems. But Amy, I'm curious what you want to say about what it's saying. I couldn't agree with you more, Melissa. And I'm always torn between my enthusiasm for the technologies that are coming and the realistic reality that you can have the technologies, but actually deploying them at scale in the time frame we need to deploy them can be a really huge challenge. So again, to be unstatistical for a minute, but be more qualitative, you know, I've done some work with the UN Commission on Africa and uh, on adaptation adaptation requirements and country assessments. And there are many countries in East Africa and other parts of Africa where the government doesn't even have the capacity and the state utility does not have the capacity to even assess the kinds of things, Melissa, that you're talking about. So, you know, here in the United States, I guess I would say blanketly, and I'm sure we'll get some hate mail on this, that there's really no excuse for a community utility, not to invest in the resources to understand how its service area might change from a temperature requirement over time. But there are a lot of countries in Africa, which I've studied, and I'm sure it's no different in other parts of the world, that don't have the capability to do this mapping, much less have access to the kinds of technologies for demand management or heat pump technology that's going to be able to provide heating and cooling in a way that's not so energy intensive. And so, you know, I do think it's a huge capabilities problem. 
you know, if you look at the sort of ethical writing in the area of philosophy, you know, this question about capabilities is like, is energy a human right as climate change worsens? You know, I might argue that it becomes not just a sustainable development goal, but actually a necessity, a human right, like access to food and water. And we're not preparing properly. When you think about the fact that, you know, climate leaders of the G20 got together and they're just arguing about the wording about whether we're going to lower or not lower fossil fuel use or whether we're going to use carbon sequestration. I mean, that is off point. Like the fact that people spent hours talking about that and then briefing journalists about that really heaves me off because when you've really studied these issues exactly like Melissa and I have, we're talking about life and death preparations that need to be made for millions of people. And these guys are just fiddling while Rome burns. Well, hang on. You say fiddling while Rome burns. Is that not a really crucial issue for the leaders of the world to be debating, which is what is the continual role for fossil fuels? I mean, I think there's one little observation I had about this, which I'll come on to. But just, just to go back to your point, why shouldn't they be talking about this? Because they should be talking about how to raise the capabilities of countries to do energy systems planning. And, you know, the reason I bring up hydro in Africa is that there's no plans to bring Mozambique's natural gas or Nigeria's natural gas to solve these problems on the African continent. Nigeria has the highest rate of electricity deprivation of any country or many, most of the countries on the continent. I mean, they have the largest resources of natural gas. If natural gas was the solution, Nigeria would have 100% electrification, which they don't, right? So I find these debates very esoteric and polemical, and they don't focus on the actual geographies of what are the resources that are available in those geographies and how are we going to deploy them and how will those resources that are available in specific geographies actually cope with what we need. And, you know, Ed, you know, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal article. They, I think, maybe partly sarcastically made the point that Texas would be in a bad place with the temperatures that Melissa's talking about, you know, north of 110, but for the fact that they have increased their access to solar energy. And that's happening at noon in the afternoon when temperatures are the hottest. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's exactly right. I don't think they were being sarcastic at all, actually. I think that was, uh, as you say, that's just a, a simple statement of fact. Solar power has been absolutely booming in Texas. It's, I think, doubled Texas's solar capacity over the past year. It's up to about 19 gigawatts now, as you say, playing a really important role in keeping everyone's AC running. Obviously, solar power doesn't like the heat so much, but it does like the sunlight, obviously. And so that's something which has been very important. And I mean, it brings me to something I wanted to bring up because I thought it was really interesting. And I think this is, I mean, it's a good point about the US, but I think it's worth thinking about more generally as well, which is NERC, the North America Electric Reliability Corporation, you know, which is this body that talks about reliability of the power system across North America. They do a regular kind of summer outlook and they did their 2023 look ahead to what they thought was going to happen over this this summer. And they warned there was going to be a lot of strain on the power grid because of these uh, rising temperatures. And they said, I think the number is two thirds of the US is at risk of blackouts over the summer. And the way they talked about this, they did not say, oh, it's because of more wind and solar being added to the grid, which obviously is what some people will tell you. And that's the story that some people like to tell. They said, actually, that wind and solar and storage 
being added to the grid is great and that really helps and that will help keep the lights on over the summer. The problem then is the pace at which fossil fuel generation capacity is being shut down and coal-fired power plants in particular being lost off the grid. And so you are net-net making it harder to keep the grid stable. So question, do you agree with that analysis? Is that something that makes sense to you? And do you find it a useful framework to think about what I think about when I think about, in general, the energy transition on a global scale, which is that it's really important to add more low-carbon energy, but we can't just assume the low-carbon energy is there and act as if it is and shut down all the high-carbon energy, which, at least for the time being, we are going to rely on to meet all the demands for energy that we've got. Yes, we have to keep energy reliable and secure and affordable as we increasingly make it low carbon. And so I know when I was in a discussion at that hearing, I think I mentioned for the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee, I think we mentioned it in another episode, NERC was talking about what they were seeing in terms of trends. And the thing that just keeps coming up is, look, in a future world where we're already to all the way to net zero, the analysis, and I said this at the hearing, I said the analysis says that we probably need in the United States, but I'll bring it to global in a minute, but that in the United States, we need about the same amount of firm dispatchable electricity as we have today. Now we will use it differently. We will flex it differently. We need to adapt our market so we can pay for it in different ways, but you need a mix of technologies to keep energy secure and to keep it reliable, affordable, all those things. So within that, if we are retiring from dispatchable resources and we're replacing them only with variable resources and variable plus energy storage, let's say, we're going to end up with a gap and that's a problem. And so we need to address that. And I think this is why some of us have been really following geothermal energy and other types of firm power. I know there's a lot of exciting announcements that have come out recently because that is this missing piece. And I will say, when I look at interconnection queues, when I look at like what's being built, Yes, we need more clean energy, but we need to make sure that what we're building brings the attributes that we're actually retiring as well. And I say attributes, meaning that you could actually supply all the different things you need in a combination of ways, but you got to replace it. That's a fantastic segue to the last thing I wanted to talk about on the show today, which is this very exciting sounding breakthrough in geothermal energy that was announced a few days ago by a company called Fervo Energy. But before we get into that, Amy, was there something else you wanted to say? Well, I would just reiterate my point, but in a different way. So the reason I point out how much hydro is used on the African continent and what a vital role it plays in providing electricity services to a majority of high population countries is to really make the point, which, you know, all these discussions, you know, people come with their agenda because they have someone who's, you know, their best friend owns a coal plant and they're, it's a tragedy that it could shut down or whatever it is. I mean, I grew up in an area of Massachusetts where people died because of the coal plant in Salem, Massachusetts, which was eventually forced closed by a, a good governor. So I, I'm a little less sympathetic, but you know what I would say to you is this, and that gets back to Melissa's point. The solution is not one size fits all, and it's geographically driven. Are you attempting to deal with cold temperatures or hot temperatures? Are you going to deal with water shortage or not? What is the nature of of the resources you have. If you're a highly agricultural society, you should be looking at ways to energy, right? So even within the United States, there isn't this one size fits all. I think one of the beauties of the IRA legislation and the infrastructure bill is that it recognized that some states have can use 
certain resources that other states don't have. And that's why imbalanced markets matter. That's why, you know, my new research now is focused on cross-border electricity trade and all the things that go with that, because we're going to have to trade in electricity because people are going to have different kind of resources. We all know that Europe's doing better this summer, partly because French nuclear is doing better this summer, and that can be shipped around to other countries. So what I find problematic, and you know, whether it's the organizations you're quoting or whether it's the debate in the G20 or later this year in the COP28, is to describe all this as if there's some universal truth is really doing a disservice to everybody who's trying to solve this problem in a particular location because it's geo-specific. And to my students out there who listen to the show and other people who are thinking they want to study this subject, learn GIS for climate change. We're adding a course at NYU School for Professional Studies because the solutions are going to be geospatial. So that's a great point, And that is a great way to get into our last subject, which is this supposed breakthrough in geothermal energy, which could be one part of a solution that could be appropriate for some parts of the world. As you say, that's a a really important mental framework to think about the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. But geothermal does seem like it's really interesting in the sense in particular that, as you were saying, Melissa, it's a source of clean, firm power, low-carbon, dispatchable electricity. And there has been this issue with geothermal that it's, it's kind of been great, but it's limited only to very specific parts of the world where the geological conditions are right. And I was looking at some analysis from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in the US. I mean, if you look at their estimates, it feels like the sort of traditional existing geothermal technology would work in places where it could provide maybe perhaps up to 3% or so of the total electricity generation capacity of the US. So it's only able to be a very, very limited part of things. But then you get what are called these enhanced geothermal systems, which have various kinds of technological innovations, which mean that they can be deployed much more widely. They go deeper. And in particular, what this company called Fervo Energy is doing is it's using horizontal drilling. So basically, techniques that's been very, very successfully deployed in the oil and gas industry. It made possible the shale revolution that's led to this huge boom in oil and gas production in the US. It's saying we use that same technique for hydropower and it can open up a much larger area. And again, using those Enrol numbers, I think Enrol says that if you're using this enhanced geothermal, it could provide 9 or 10% or even more of the total power generation capacity of the US. So it could play a very, very significant role. But unfortunately, it doesn't exist at the moment. And so what companies are doing is trying to get pilot projects to work. And what Fervo said a few days ago was that they'd had successful test results from their first commercial scale pair of wells that they drilled. And they said their conclusion from it was, and this was a paper they published, they said, no technical barriers exist to developing horizontal well geothermal drilling programs in high temperature hard rock settings. So obviously early days yet, but potentially really exciting development, making it possible to open up a much, much bigger geothermal industry across the US and around the world. What do you think, Amy? You've been looking at this announcement. How excited are you about it? 
I think it's exciting. I mean, I coming from university world, so commending Boston University for drilling their 31 geothermal wells to connect to a heat pump to run heating and cooling at their data center. When I was at UC Davis, we had the Honda House, which is a futuristic house that had eight 20-foot deep boreholes that uh, used geothermal heat pump to basically cool ceilings and floors to control the temperature in the house through radiant heat. But devil's in the details, the same thing like we had with shale. I mean, is it going to, you know, if you read the science article that goes behind this well, they did find that there was no severe seismic effect, but there wasn't no seismic effect. So again, you know, devil's in the details. When, you know, drill one well, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen when you drill 100 wells. But there's some debate about the potential of geothermal. It's a little farther ahead in Europe, and the Europeans have these really ambitious geothermal numbers in their strategic planning for the continent. But when you look at actual consultants and academic studies, the amount of geothermal contribution really does hover around that estimates of the more 4 to 5% type number. And like you say, maybe that'll change with technology, but it's not going to radically change, I think, the landscape for how we solve things. And everybody keeps looking for a silver bullet. And I think it's what Melissa said earlier in the show. You know, there's just some really hard work that needs to be done in strategic planning, in particular geographies, about how to transition a system that's both sustainable and reliable. Okay, my favorite phrase, sorry, Amy made me think of it. My favorite phrase from a conversation I had this morning before we started recording is uh, silver bulletitis. And our need to cure silver bulletitis is in the belief that one silver bullet will fix all that ails us. Um, I just, I, I maybe you guys have heard that one before. Silver bullet, of course, we've all heard it. Silver buckshot, all those things. But this was my first exposure to silver bulletitis. I will attribute it to Chris Bataille, my colleague here at the Center on Global Energy Policy, who does industrial decarbonization and those really tricky things you talk about. Just real quick, we'll flag for the international, global, kind of all the discussions we were getting into a minute ago about, you know, what is needed to provide energy for development. If folks are interested in just kind of learning the basics of how like geothermal development in different parts of Africa, what it's looked like. We actually did an episode, it was late last fall on the Big Switch, the podcast I host at Columbia called In Kenya, It's Geothermal for the Win. And we talked to engineers and the people who developed the geothermal resources and the practical kind of challenges they run into and how different technologies may or may not be changing that when it comes to developing what is actually a really rich resource that's pretty close to the surface in a lot of cases. When it comes to this technology, I agree with Amy in the sense of this is not a silver bullet. I do not suffer from silver bulletitis when it comes to this. But I do find it exciting that in terms of commercialization curve of something I was working on at the Department of Energy a decade ago in terms of how we could get it up this curve to see Tim and his team achieve this milestone and then see the announcements about the agreement with Google and other things come out is exciting. Because if there's one thing in the path to net zero that I will say I'm pretty firm on, no pun intended, is that we need as many tools in our toolbox as we can possibly have. To your point, Amy, about the geographic diversity, to the thing I said earlier, and we were discussing, Ed, about the need for different mixes of attributes to make sure that whatever we create is reliable, affordable, sustainable, clean, secure, all the things we want. It's exciting to potentially have another tool in the toolbox that can be used in more places. Absolutely. And that, Tim, you mentioned that. That's Tim Latimer. He's the CEO and co-founder, right, at Fervo. Mm-hmm 
who is, I think I'm right in saying, a oil and gas drilling engineer by background. So a very interesting example of somebody who comes from that world moving into the renewable energy world. Yeah, I think he was at BHP Billiton back in the day. And this is a really another great example of, you know, when we talk about the different skill sets we need in the energy transition, there are transferable skills. And we've talked about that as a group on the show before. You know, this is not a starting from zero and you need a completely different skill set. It's about transferable skills. It's also fundamentally about needing more electricians, but we won't go down that that path. But yeah, Tim comes with a really interesting perspective because he used to be a completion engineer. And he knows what that looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. So Amy and Melissa, I'll take your notes of caution on this. I mean, certainly one thing that I found pretty sobering was looking at the Department of Energy's Earthshot program on this. They have a program on, I think they call it the Enhanced Geothermal Shot, which is one of these sort of government-backed innovation initiatives where they're trying to kind of drive a clean energy technology forward. And they said their goal for this technology is to reduce the cost of enhanced geothermal power by 90% by 2035 to $45 per megawatt hour. So in other words, I think if my arithmetic is correct, that means that it's currently costing $450 per megawatt hour, which is a very long way from being uh, commercially viable. I think, I mean, there's other numbers flying around. I think I saw an enroll number was more like $160 per megawatt hour, something like that, which is kind of a bit closer to being kind of in the ballpark of something that might be viable. But clearly, though, as you say, Amy, there is a, a long way to go yet. I would just say, though, and again, picking up on your point, Melissa, that it is really exciting to see what is a genuine US technological strength in terms of horizontal drilling capability being repurposed for clean energy. This is something that, you know, tens of thousands of horizontal wells have now been drilled in the US. That's something that people know how to do very well indeed. And when you talk about these wells being for some kind of geothermal systems being tens of feet deep, the horizontal length of this one, of the well pair, was more than 3,000 feet. I mean, it is something really very, very different in the world of geothermal, although actually something that's quite familiar in the world of oil and gas. So I do think it's pretty exciting from that point of view, and certainly it's going to be something that's well worth watching in the future, I think. So we do just about have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But as ever, time for our free electrons, personal items that we've brought in. Uh, Melissa, what's yours? All right. So this one is not as serious as some of my other ones might be. But I was reflecting. You guys remember a couple months ago, I had my teacup that sits as my backup teacup. So I finished my first tea. And then I have the one that's been sitting on the little warmer because it's a little induction thing on my desk. It doesn't use a ton of electricity. And then I was comparing it to a microwave if I had to reheat my tea. Anyway, we went down that rabbit hole. I've got another one. All right. So my car says it's 115 degrees Fahrenheit outside. We've talked on the show how I have a Tesla. It has this thing called dog mode, which means that in the state of Texas, I mean, you do not travel with your dog if you're going to be away from your car for any period of time. Because if the dog can't come into the place you're going, if you're going to have to leave your dog in the car, like that is an unsafe situation. Horrible thoughts going through my head right now. But I have dog mode, which means it can be 115 outside and I can use a bit of that battery, the power that's stored in it, 
to keep my dog at 75, a cozy 73 if I wanted to, inside the car while I go inside to like grab my mail. And I just think about what this unlocks in terms of okay, interesting different things about demand creep. And yes, Ed, I'm trying to calculate that right now, but also in terms of behavior changes that are enabled by these new technologies that, you know, I bought my car to get me from point A to B, but it's actually allowing me to modify my life in little different ways that are quite nice when I take my dog to a dog park. I could actually run a few errands and therefore I'm doing less trips. So the net effect of this kind of, is it a creep in my energy demand? I actually think my calculations are going to tell me I had a savings because I did a bunch of trips all in one because my dog could be safe in my car. And 115 is terrible. No, no. When you're in the 90s, it's already bad. You already don't want to have your dog in the car for a short period of time. So this affects how I can run my trip efficiency, my operational efficiency for many months of the year here in Texas. I just find this very interesting um, overall. So that's the rabbit hole I'm doing today. <laughs> that's the one. It is absolutely fascinating and a great example of exactly the point you were just making earlier. As you say, technological change, innovation can absolutely help with the problems raised by climate change, but not necessarily for everyone. And if you don't have a Tesla, it's a problem that's going to get worse and is going to be difficult for people when causing all the issues, as you say, that you would face if you didn't have that ability. I have a Tesla with reliable, affordable electricity that I can get in many places delivered to my car quickly. So I have all of the perfect ingredients. I'm in a sweet spot for having what I have and the whole world and the whole country, even in the US doesn't have that to your point, Ed. Absolutely. Yeah. As you say, and those of us who do have that are very lucky. Amy, what's yours? Well, so I did a commentary in the Wall Street Journal specifically on this question of solutions that are non-electrical. So, you know, the journal wanted to be catchy, you know, five reasons why it can't be electricity. And I've gotten mostly positive comments since the article is run, but I got one cranky email from a gentleman who said he'd been 45 years in electrical engineering. He was very negative. And I probably won't email him back because it probably wouldn't be a constructive exchange. He already made a, you know, flip remark about getting my pronoun right. So that kind of put me in a mindset about his attitudes. But the interesting thing about it is what I wanted to say to him, from my experience, is that if he's been 45 years in a career and he's not liking a technology piece that's talking about new technologies that are coming down the road, like onboard carbon sequestration for 18-wheeler trucks, maybe he needs to try to learn new things. And so my free electron is about my family holiday with my son-in-law, who's very big on always making sure we're all using the latest technology. And so he trained in the hours where we were just sitting around in the house. He tried to train my husband and I to use chat GPT properly. And so a shout out to him because I'm doing my syllabus now for my fall clean tech class. And I'm going to teach my students how to do a pitch deck because it looks like a very good use of artificial intelligence for learning. Very interesting. We had that very interesting show, you'll remember, where we talked about AI and energy and some of its applications. And as I was saying then, I do think a lot of these kind of language-based creative type applications using creative perhaps in its most, uh, you know, <laughs> the lowest possible sense, those are places where AI can actually be really powerful and make a huge difference, as you say, for things like teaching. 
I will tell you, and Amy, I had my first, I was, I guess I'm a sort of late adopter, though not really, but amongst my group of colleagues, I'm a late adopter of exploring ChatGPT. And I used it the other day to take a paper I'd written in an academic journal, and I asked it to create a Twitter thread. Um, and I asked it for like, create one for general public, create one for eighth graders, create one for graduate students in university who have a diversity of fields they come from. Mostly because I was curious how these things would differ and how this system would interpret what these different groups would find engaging and accessible in, you know, however many characters I have on Twitter these days. And I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I need training on how to make this thing do it effectively. But I didn't end up using the tweets themselves, though I used them as like a structure. But they were pretty good. A little too many emojis for me when it came to the general public ones. But it was it was good. And I do like emojis. There were just a lot, a lot of emojis. That is a fantastic story. I, I you know, hadn't even thought about trying to use it that way. We should come back to that, actually, because it's a really interesting thought about. And I don't know whether was the AI trying to adopt your style in the use of emojis or was it just something it liked to do? So this is um, something that I think with training, but Amy would know better, I could train it to like read a bunch of stuff that I've written or a bunch of, you know, speeches I've given and it could probably put it into my voice, but I am, I'm an intro basic user <laughs> at this point. I just have been playing around with it. People have spent way more time on ChatGPT than I have. So you can apparently teach it. Go. So my husband, who's a blogger on law surrounding health, my husband did much more work with my son-in-law than I did. And- he claims that the tool will give him like a basic, he trains it to read previous blogs and then tells it to write in his style, a blog that has the following points. And he says he has to edit it, but that it's like having a young person as a copy editor for himself to help improve his blog. And he claims that it's the best written blog he's done to date was the one that these language programs helped him with. So that's his testament to that. And if I can say one quick thing, I was going to do only one for Electron, but one of the other ones I almost said was actually talking about this stuff that's been coming out in the news about access of non-native English speakers in research to like the research community and having high impact if you're not an English speaker first. I wonder, Amy, how tools like this and combined with things like Grammarly and other things might provide more access for people doing great work who English isn't their native language. There's researchers all over the world who are studying incredible things and the language barrier is still real. I do wonder how these tools are going to help break down those barriers over time. Yeah, no, that is a fantastic point. My Free Electron report written by colleagues of mine at Wood Mackenzie, very, very interesting. I would just urge people to go and take a look at it on our website, woodmac.com. It's called Doing More With Less. And what it's doing is looking at the outlook for oil and gas production and really just making the point that the industry is getting more and more efficient in terms of how it extracts and processes hydrocarbons. And I just think it's worth thinking about because it's a reminder that fossil fuels aren't just going to be outcompeted. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, look at all the amazing progress there is in clean energy. And you think about how the costs of wind and solar and storage are plunging. And therefore, these technologies are just going to replace fossil fuels in the global energy market. But of course, what's also happening is there's tremendous technological progress in oil and gas as well. You know, 20 years ago, there were lots of people who thought, oh, we're going to be running out of oil by now, by the mid-2020s. But then we had the shale revolution, the tight oil revolution. And in fact, there's a whole load more oil available than we thought. And as I say, I think it's a reminder that fossil fuels are not just going to 
go away on their own. If you really want the world to transition away from high carbon energy and towards lower carbon energy, then government policy is going to be vital. Anyway, as I say, that's I think it's a very interesting report and check it out on woodmac.com. So we do unfortunately have to leave it there. Many thanks to you, Amy. Thank you, Ed. And many thanks to you, Melissa. Thanks, Ed. Amy, I always enjoy these conversations with y'all. It certainly is always a great pleasure. Many thanks to our producers, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, whatever it might be. Uh, You can find us on Twitter. I mean, is it Twitter? I'm not sure what that thing is called nowadays. Is it called X? The branding has got me hopelessly confused. Anyway, the platform formerly known as Twitter, we're at The Energy Gang and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon as at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. And they're also on threads as at Ed.crooks and also on Blue Sky as edcrooks.bsky.social. Going to take up half the show soon, just announcing all these platforms. As we were saying last week, roll on the day when there's just one platform where all the most intelligent and interesting discussions about energy are happening. I really do think we need that. But in the meantime, we will be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.